Turning your Bibles to John chapter 2. I have a new app on my phone called Bible.is. Bible.is. If you have a smartphone, I recommend it. It's an audio version of the Bible in more than one translation. And so today I would like to play you this story from John chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. It's a story of the wedding in Cana, the first miracle of Jesus. What you're about to hear is the English Standard Version dramatized. John 2. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Now draw some out, and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. I'm going to recommend another Bible. It's the Action Bible, illustrated. If you're a new Christian and you're not familiar with all the stories of the Bible, this has most of them in it. It's wonderfully illustrated. It's done by one of these graphic comic book guys that used to work for Marvel, and he did a marvelous job. It's good. This is the Action Bible, a version of this story, titled the story, The Wedding Saver. reads, In Cana, Jesus attends a wedding feast. His mother and disciples are there too. For days, a celebration is loud and joyous, but then they run out of wine. Before the guests can notice, Mary turns to her son to fix the problem, and before Jesus can say no, Mary instructs servants, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. It was customary in that day to have several days of a wedding. I can't imagine how the groom and bride must feel, you know, <laughs> who've been in love and They've been planning on being married, and they've been using discipline, and this wedding never comes to an end. <laughs> I kind of like the modern version anyway. So Mary tells him, do whatever he tells you to do. He says, fill these pots with water, these jars with water. What good is water? We need more wine, the guy must be thinking. This is like a, it's between 120 and 180 gallons of water in these pots. Six of them between 20 and 30 gallons apiece. Just come up with an average. That's 150 gallons of water. So that's a lot. How much does a gallon weigh? Eight pounds? So this is 1,200 pounds of water. This is awesome. And so Jesus orders the servants to pour some for the head waiter to taste. Just remember in your mind, put it in the back of your mind, water is being poured. Pouring water into the vessel taking water from the well, pouring it into the vessel, and then pouring it into another vessel and carrying it to the feast, master. 
Tommy Birchfield says, it was from the dip to the sip that the miracle happened. And here the Action Bible says that the master of the feast said, wait, this is terrific, the best wine of the whole party. I like this. They did this party right. (laughs) Usually people serve the best wine first, but they save the best for last. This miracle is the first sign of Jesus' power, and his new disciples eagerly put their faith in him. What in the world is going on in this story? I have a friend named Mike Tomello. He's in Stephenville, and he's a believer, written a book entitled Eight Things I Hate About Jesus. And in there is this story. How could the God of heaven send his son and make wine? Well, let's just think about it. God is a creator, right? Why did he make killer whales? Why did he make herbs that could be turned into medicine that somebody could kill themselves with? You know, if we made the world, it'd be filled with stuffed animals. It wouldn't be very fun. It'd be kind of boring. God's a God of danger. He's a God to be feared. He is awesome. And all of his creation reflect some aspect of what he is like. And I think the creation of wine is, a, is an illustration of his temperance, of his control. Because wine can destroy you. The Bible says it's a mocker. In fact, the Bible denounces strong drink. It's not wine, obviously. This is an issue in church life that we get distracted from the point of this story with. And so I have to deal with it because it's in your minds. Yeah, Jesus made wine. Uh, No, it wasn't wine. It was grape juice. That stuff was fresh. We don't know. How long does it take to grow a vine to create a cluster of grapes? And then how long does it take for grapes to ripen? And then to pick them and then to stomp them and then to filter them and bottle them. I mean, this is a process of time compressed in an instant. And there it is. So is it fresh stomped? I don't know. Maybe they watered it down. I don't know. You can get into those commentaries and read all that. Point is, he turned water into wine, which is an amazing miracle. Compression of time and labor is just really amazing. And it redeemed a wedding. It saved an embarrassing situation. That Somehow, somebody messed up in their figures how much wine it would take. Maybe if your family spent a lot of money on their child's wedding, when it came time to go to yours, they pigged out. I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, it was an embarrassing situation that the Lord helped them with. The subject of alcohol is a painful one for many because it can be so destructive. Like fire. Fire in its proper place can warm you up in the wintertime, can cook your food and make a good steak just right. But in its wrongful place, it can bring absolute havoc. In America, we have a thing with a liability in our mind. I think it's gone to seed in our culture. We're losing our freedom because we're wanting to prevent any possibility of anybody ever being hurt. All the gun owners in the house, be quiet. I'm not going to be getting into that subject. The point is, God gave us freedom, 
and expects us to walk in discipline. And so if alcohol is a temptation to you, you can't have it without getting drunk. Drunkenness is a sin. If you don't believe it, read the newspapers. Most of that stuff you read about, alcohol was involved. Won't get me to sin. I'll just do it at the house by myself. Well, we did a funeral recently for a guy that thought like that, and he died from it. And so if you can't have self-control, then just don't. I don't like this stuff anyway, so I'll join you. I do have one temptation with alcohol. I love a few spoonfuls of Bailey's on vanilla ice cream. Oh, man, that's good. But you know what? I can live the rest of my life without touching that. Really can. And if you can drink it in temperance and not get drunk and enjoy it, go for it. But don't do it in such a way that causes someone to stumble. Got a brother that's been sober for five years and he comes to your house. Don't break out the Bud Light. Hey, it's less filling, more taste. (laughs) Don't get that brother to fall off the wagon. Don't do that. Well, he needs to have more discipline. He does. He's not drinking. He's exercising his discipline. There's a church here in town that used to have alcohol at their picnics and then they got a new priest. Ooh, I let the cat out of the bag. They got a new minister. And the man of God began to ban alcohol at their picnics. So they argued with him, some of the leaders of the church. You know, he didn't last long at that church. He's not there anymore. The leaders of the church approached him and said, doesn't the Bible say we can drink provided we have temperance? Yes. Then why can't we drink at our picnics? Because we're going to demonstrate our temperance by not drinking. Because the present, there was a problem with drunkenness at their, at the church functions. And so he drew a line in the sand. And so we've kind of drawn a line in the sand here. This building is used for weddings, parties, I mean, all kind of stuff. We have a blast. We just don't want alcohol served on our property. What do you serve at communion? Well, it depends on how old the grape juice is. (laughs) Don't you love it? God expects us to stand up and walk by faith and trust him. I mean, we all want rules and all this stuff, and he expects the person that has a drinking problem to exercise discipline and not, and he expects the person that's able to drink with temperance to not judge the person that can't, and the person that can't to not judge the person that can. And he brings us together from all different walks of life. Many of us are as opposite as as we can get, yet what a demonstration of the love of God that draws us together. People of all ages Generations is our name because of that. He's just an awesome God. Yeah, he made puppies and kittens. He made lions and tigers too. (laughs) He's a kind God, but he's dangerous. So we walk in awe of him with a healthy fear of him. He's a consuming fire, the Bible says. So what was God thinking? He was thinking. And we'll understand everything better by and by. Why did he make sex so pleasurable? In its rightful place, it strengthens marriages, it creates children, it does all kinds of benefits for mankind. But in its wrong place, it spreads hurt, disease, all kinds of other stuff. 
Lord, just help us to walk in understanding today that we would not walk in judgmentalism, but, Lord, we would walk in wisdom and openness and freedom. Help us to be mature as a body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, today I would like to speak to you on the wedding Savior. Jesus is the wedding Savior. Now, the Action Bible entitled it The Wedding Savior, but he's the wedding Savior. And the key to understanding this story is in verse 4. If you just read it quickly, you think Mary hinted at Jesus. Jesus didn't want to do it, and, and Mary manipulated him into doing something about the problem. Okay, Mom. You know, here's the Son of God, Savior of the world, the Word of God made flesh, being manipulated by his mom. The key is what was on his mind at this wedding. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You ever been somewhere yet you're not really there? Weddings can do that to you. Lots of emotions in the crowd at a wedding. You might be thinking you didn't get one or yours was better or are they going to last? Is the couple going to make it? (laughs) Something was on his mind. And the clue to this is that last sentence in verse 4, my hour has not yet come. This hour was on his mind. And this phrase is in several places in the book of John Chapter 7, verse 6, the first part of it says, Jesus says, my time has not yet come. Verse 8, he says, I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. He knew there were elements out there wanting to kill him, and it was going to happen, but there was a time for it in the fullness of time. No one laid a hand on him, verse 30, because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 8, verse 20, no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. Chapter 12, verse 23, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He's getting ready to go to the cross. Chapter 13, verse 1, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So for three and a half years of his ministry, this miracle happened at the first part of his ministry. It's the first miracle he performed in his windshield is his destination, the coming hour. Chapter 17, verse 1, he's praying to the Father in his opening words, getting ready to go to the cross. Father, the hour has come. This is the key to the story. We may never agree about alcohol. May never. We have to run to Jesus. The story isn't about alcohol. The story is about the hour that is coming. And he begins his miracle ministry here that's going to propel him towards that hour. I have in my office this picture. It was given to me at a rough time in my life, a job I hated with every fiber of my being. Many times before I go to work, I'd say, Yvette, please pray for me. And she'd lay hands on my heart and pray. And by faith, I would receive strength and get up and go through the motions to provide for my family. 
I was in this place. And so the person who gave me the picture had no idea what it meant to me. This is him praying. Father, the hour has come. This picture points to the place where the battle was won. Now, I know it was won on the cross and from the empty tomb. But it began with his surrendering to the Father's will when the hour came. You know, there's a time for everything under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, and a time to lay down your life. There may be some here in your life may be wondering what in the world is going on. It may be because it's your time to die. It's time to lay down your will for the joy set before you. Like Jesus, we endure the cross that we have to carry. He said, we all must deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. So we all have unique challenges to face in life. So it begins here. If we want to be victorious, we must let him be victorious and surrender. And as our leader, he set the pace for us. I love this picture because the artist unknowingly put the Dome of the Rock in the background. That wasn't there. Muhammad didn't do his thing till 600 A.D. But I love the fact that it's there because it points to the principle that this surrender is important for us all for all time. See off in the right, there's the disciples asleep. Sometimes you may be going through stuff and your friends are clueless. <laughs> they are clueless. And all you can do during this time is think, Lord, have I ever been like that? Have I ever been that clueless? <laughs> have mercy on them. So I think this is what's on his mind at the wedding. Because this was ultimately going to lead to his own wedding. Yes, today we're speaking on Jesus is the wedding Savior who saved his own wedding too. He saved his bride. If the bride's missing, the wedding's wrecked. <laughs> there's a wedding in, his, in the far future for him. But there's work to be done in advance to get the bride ready. You and I are part of that bride corporately. You know, individually, we are the sons of God, sons and daughters of God. But realistically, we are all sons of God. Because you see, in biblical culture, the son got the inheritance. The daughter hopefully married the right guy. In Christ, there's no male or female. We all get the same inheritance. So we are all sons of God, plural. But corporately, we are the bride, not the brides. Anybody that says, I'm the bride of Christ. No, that's error. We are the bride of Christ. Hopefully, men, that's not too feminine for you. But we are the bride of Christ. Think of it like this. America often is referred to with a feminine feminine pronoun. God bless my nation. Hopefully she makes a stand for righteousness. We don't think twice about that. 
So it is with the church. The church is the bride of Christ. And so the great wedding Savior who saved that wedding in Cana saved his own wedding by saving his bride. Who likes chick flicks? All the women. I'll watch them with my wife. And generally in there, there's a certain point of conflict where the heroine must be saved. And a lot of Westerns are like that too. The girl's got to be saved. Well, to me, all that mythology out there points to what history's all about. The Son of God came to save his bride. The wedding Savior who saved his own wedding too. When I read this story, I have thoughts. Like a lot of wedding guests during any wedding, Jesus was probably thinking of his own wedding. I think so. And the price he must pay to save his wedding or save his bride. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. Jesus did that for us. So I think the cost was on his mind. A lot of times men, when they go to a wedding, especially if they've got a daughter, they're thinking, how much does this thing cost? So the need of this wedding was pretty puny compared to the need of his, right? His was going to cost him everything. Another thought. Prophetically, perhaps he was foreseeing sorrow in the midst of joy. I've heard it said that prophets might be crying when everyone else is rejoicing and rejoicing when everyone else is crying. Prophetically, perhaps he was foreseeing sorrow in the midst of joy so that now prophetically we can foresee joy in the midst of sorrow. We got a wedding coming. Our prince shall come. Second Corinthians 4 says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporary. The things that are not seen are eternal. Prophetically, through the eyes of faith, all hell can be breaking loose in your life, but you can have joy because you know the story's not over. Number three, as he transformed clean water, I've heard people preach, like, like the miracle's not big enough. He made wonderful wine out of dirty water. This was dishwater. <laughs> no. The pots were there for cleaning purposes. So if they're there for cleaning purposes, why would you let them stay dirty? So these were clean pots, and they put clean water in them. You don't need to help the Lord out by stretching the word. As he transformed clean water into wonderful wine for all those who would drink it, notice nobody knew it was wine till they drank it. So was a miracle in the drinking? Or was it while it was sitting there in the pot? I like to believe it was in the pouring, in the obedient pouring. Because in the obedient pouring out of his life, transformation came for us. 
as he transformed clean water into wonderful wine for all those who would drink it. So he transformed his ugly death into eternal life for all who would receive him. There's your dirty dishwater. On the cross, they stuck a sponge in his mouth with vinegar on it. If you knew what that was used for, you have been to a public restroom in biblical times when they didn't have toilet paper. Nastiness. Poured out his life to save his bride so that our sins that have separated us from God, that disqualified us from being his bride, that separate us from one another, that keep us from becoming a unified bride, could be atoned for and paid for through the wonderful work on the cross. Revelation 22:17 says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Just as at the wedding, the wine was not enjoyed unless you drank it, so it is in what Christ has provided for us in the giving of his life. It is not enjoyed till you taste and see that the Lord is good. By faith you receive him. Say, Lord, I'm not sure about all this stuff I hear that you died for my sins, but I find myself believing it. That's called saving faith that he's given you. It's a gift. You can't believe it unless he enables you. If he gives you that faith, step out on it and call on his name. Say, Jesus, forgive me. I trust you. As you begin to taste the forgiveness of sins, you'll find yourself wanting others to taste it and wanting to forgive people that have hurt you. It's life-changing. Another thought is just as Jesus saved this wedding, so he saved his own by saving his bride leaving us an example that can save our marriages too. You know, in our culture, it's all about the wedding, not so much about the marriage. All kinds of preparation goes into the wedding. And there's a bride and groom as poorly prepared for life together as you can expect. It's harder to get a driver's license than it is a marriage license sometimes. Through following Christ's example, he can redeem your marriage. He can Continuing from that passage we read earlier in Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Just as the Lord does the church. Well, she won't do right. Well, does the church do right? What was Jesus' response to her rebellion? Do bolts of lightning come down and people fall over dead in church? He washes us with his word. He loves us. He forgives us. He pardons us. He gave his life for us. And he continues to be patient with us. If he wasn't, I couldn't be in this building. If we ran church like we run our marriages, there wouldn't be any people in it. You better toe the line. As men, we lead the way. Well, aren't women supposed to submit? Well, I believe submit means to let lead, but... How are you going to lead the way? By laying down your life. Well, she needs to lay down hers. Oh, it's not a, this is not a tit-for-tat situation. This is an obedience to the Creator. He can heal your marriage. You can't. I can only make it worse. So as I do His will, trust Him. He's your father-in-law too. He'll deal with His child. All right, fifthly, 
Weddings should point us to the marriage supper of the Lamb when we as a church are joined to our groom for eternity. Prophecy in Revelation 19, verse 7, The marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. For it, and to her it has been granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are blessed. You know, Jesus is known as the bridegroom. Even in his ministry, he referred to himself as that. Because one day, some people came to him critical of his disciples and said, Hey, John the Baptist, his disciples fast. How come yours don't? He said, Should the friends of the bridegroom be fasting while they're with him? There'll be plenty of time for fasting later. But right now, we're going to party. We're going to eat. We're going to fellowship. And so he was called the friend of sinners. He wasn't seen fasting. I mean, they made a big deal out of fasting back then where you could tell they were fasting, groaning, oh, looking at the pictures down at McDonald's, oh, all this stuff. Oh, man, he's just having a good time enjoying because the bridegroom was with us. The time for fasting and abstaining from certain things would come later while the bridegroom was with us. And then he tells that parable of the of the ten virgins. The bridegroom's coming. He's the bridegroom. John the Baptist called him the bridegroom. And so anytime I go to a wedding, I think of the wedding that is to come where there's a marriage supper. It's a wonderful thing. Brings us to our last point. As a fruit of the vine points to Christ's death, and our life in Him, so it also points to our future with Him. Wine points to our future with Him. Why? Look at this. Matthew 26 and also Mark 14. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. This is Him implementing in the midst of a meal the Passover supper where he broke bread and blessed it and gave it to them and said, Take and eat. This is my body. His body was about to become bread for them and that what he did on the cross was going to become a blessing for us. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sin. So we're about to take communion here in a couple minutes. And we're going to eat bread without leaven in it, remembering his sinless life and the fact he was broken for us. He was broken for my sins. He was broken for the sins of my enemy. He was broken for the sins of mankind. And what do we do in return? We receive it, just like we receive bread in our mouth. And then we drink the cup celebrating his poured out blood that was poured out. His blood was shed because his life was given. Life is in the blood. So synonymous with blood is the word life. We celebrate the life of the cup, the pleasure of the cup for him giving up his pleasure for us, him pouring out his life for us so that our sins could be forgiven. Aren't you glad about it? So 
Traditionally, we understand that. But let's go on and see that this table points also, not just to the past, what he did for us, but it also points to the future. For I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine. Yes, Jesus is now a teetotaler. Temporarily so, of course. From now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's a marriage supper coming and the wine there he's going to partake of. And there we won't have weaknesses. We'll have new bodies. We'll all be able to drink wine without any problems. Be glad about it. Lord, we just come to you right now as we prepare our hearts to receive communion. Thank you, Lord, that your body was broken for us. Your blood was poured out for us so that our sins could be forgiven. And these elements that we bless right now in the name of Jesus point us to our future with you. Thank you, Lord, for the supper that's coming. I'd like eight volunteers right quick. Help me pass out the elements as quickly as possible. as we partake of these elements we pray for your blessing and your revelation for every heart so simple who would like to pray a blessing for the bread Lord we thank you for your sacrifice and uh, we look at this Father and can reflect on all that you've done for us and all that you continue to do for us we thank you for your broken body that was done out of love and out of obedience and we take this father in obedience to your word in Jesus name
who would like to bless the cup? said after supper he took the cup and he said do this as often as you shall but always do it in remembrance of me Jesus we thank you for your life giving blood and for the power that it covers our sins so that we can enter the presence of God right here in this sanctuary and right where we are anytime thank you Jesus Thank you, Lord. Let's stand. The Lord gave us water. The water at that wedding was given by the Lord. And the Lord gave grapes that are used to make wine. Water and wine. I believe water is needed for living. Have to have it. Get dehydrated, you die. But wine, I believe, was given for three things, provided a person can have temperance. It was given for worship, communion, Passover. Was given for celebration and given for marital intimacy. Water was given for refreshing. It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. So it all points to Jesus and His provision for us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord Himself the giver of water and wine, broken bread for us. Cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord God Almighty lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace that passes all understanding without any condemnation. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your mercy. Pray, Lord, you'd heal every marriage in the house today. Let there be a breakthrough. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Go tell someone about his love.
Fuck! 